Hey, Insiders. Our 50th episode special is next Monday. Join us as we talk with our special guest, Nolan Bushnell, founder of Atari and father of the video game industry. We'll also be holding an awesome giveaway worth hundreds of dollars, catching up with previous guests of the show, and much more. So please check out the episode and support us as we reach our first major milestone, which we could have never done without all of you. Thank you so much, and enjoy this week's episode of Indie Insider. Welcome to Indie Insider, presented by Black Shell Media. This is the weekly show where we talk with video game developers and professionals about their stories, their advice for others, and their thoughts on the indie video game industry. I'm Logan Schultz, and on today's show, I sit down and talk with Craig Morrison, the design director from Blizzard Entertainment, who works on the World of Warcraft franchise. He and I talk about video game design as a philosophy and a discipline, why collaboration is so important, values and philosophies that unify a team, networking tips and tricks, and much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts, questions, or ideas on what we should do next, shoot me an email at logan at blackshowmedia.com. You can also find the most up-to-date news on the Indie Insider podcast on Twitter by following at Logan A. Schultz or at Indie underscore Insider. Finally, you can follow us on Instagram under the name Indie Insider. And now, Craig Morrison of Blizzard Entertainment. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Indie Insider. And today, I'm extremely excited. I'm talking with Craig Morrison of Blizzard Entertainment. Craig, how's it going, man? Very good. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited that we uh, get a chance to talk. I've been looking forward to this. You're a a pretty exciting guy. You've been in the industry for a while now. Yeah, I mean, uh, in terms of the industry itself, probably about 15, 16 years. But making games, man, probably close to 30 years now by most definitions. <laughs> That's incredible. So, uh, you know, obviously we will get to your work, um, you know, with some pretty major titles, with some a pretty major company, um, and we will get there. But start me out at the beginning, you know, 30-some years ago, you're making video games. How does that all start? Yeah, I was actually thinking about it today when, you know, when we knew we were going to be doing this, and I was kind of thinking, when was the first time that I actually, you know, sat down at a computer and tried to make something? And uh, I first had a personal computer in our home. It was called a BBC Micro B. I, I lived in the, in Ireland, uh, where we where I grew up, and we had this computer. And it kind of it wasn't the cool computer at the time. Other kids had like ZX Spectrums and Commodore sixty fours and Nintendos, which had games, real games on them. And the BBC Micro was much more of a uh, educational machine. Uh, my parents had bought it from us to teach us some of the basics of computing and kind of ha- to have a computer in the house. Okay. But I was always fascinated by games. And there was this magazine. Uh, it was called Input Magazine. And it was published in the 80s in the UK. And it was very like it was every month it would come out and it would teach you a little bit more about making computer programs. And one of the modules every week was always about every month was always about games. And I distinctly remember uh, looking at this magazine. And so uh, this morning I went to the wonderful archive.org and kind of looked <laughs> to see if they had it, if they had any information on this magazine. And I put in input magazine and it came up and I instantly recognized one of the covers. I was like, oh, that's really, I remember that one. And I clicked on it and I think it was number 10 in 1997. So I would have been 11 years old. And I skipped a few pages forward and there it was. I It came to me as vividly as the day I first saw it. There was this four-page spread about making writing an adventure game, a text-based adventure game. And it kind of taught you through the basics of how areas needed to be laid out 
and some very rudimentary code in BASIC for how you could create an array of all the rooms that you were going to put in this adventure game that over the course of the next six issues, because of course they wanted you to keep buying the magazine, right? they would teach you how to make this game. Uh, and at 11 years old, I remember like distinctly taking these snippets in each month's edition and kind of putting it together to try and make a game over the course of that year. And so, yeah, that's, you know, over 30 years ago uh, on a, <laughs> you know, uh, and the code is all still there in the magazine. It's kind of, it's a whole different era than when they could literally print the code line by line in the magazine because you didn't have compilers or anything then. You just kind of typed it into the machine and you saved it on a cassette tape. Uh, So those were actually the first games that I made, you know, saving my progress month by month onto a cassette tape and then praying (laughs) that the magnetic strip didn't get caught up in my tape recorder or something. Right, sure. That's incredible. That's uh, that's a crazy story. It's crazy that you just looked that up today and found all of that. It is. I was. I was. It was such a nostalgia hit. I couldn't believe. I thought, well, maybe archive.org has got it. Uh, So it was like volume one, number ten. If you want to look it up, and it's like I think it's like six pages in. They start to talk about adventure games, and there's a little diagram of these this kind of square uh, layout grid of a. And if you reading it back today. All of the basics are there of kind of design fundamentals that we would still teach to this day in kind of getting your structure right before you start and understanding what it is you want to make before you dive in. And I'm kind of like that. Those were lessons that obviously I started to learn from a very early age before I even knew what I was going to do later on. Sure. And you know, I mean, you you actually just mentioned me before we started, but I had seen it on your LinkedIn before. You um, are, are an instructor at uh, UC Irvine, correct? Yes, uh, I teach game design as part of their computer games masters, uh, computer game science program. Uh, so uh, it's a really it's a cool course where I, I get to interact with students and kind of give them uh, a bit of game design background to go with kind of the computer science side that they're already learning. Uh, so the the university kind of brings in experts from the field to kind of give the students a different layer of learning that goes beyond the simple, you know, how to use Unity or how to use Unreal, uh, where we can kind of share our experience and our knowledge uh, and kind of hopefully give them some pointers and push them in the right direction towards their creativity on the design side. Because design's an art that requires practice as well. I think that's kind of overlooked sometimes in games, you know, engineering is a discipline art is a discipline and people are like it's very clear you need to practice those to get better and they don't always apply the same thinking to design when really they should because the only way you get better at design is also by doing it and repeating it and learning talk to me a little bit more about that since we're already here we're chatting about it um about the design and creativity as opposed to you know the necessarily the the nuts and bolts of engineering yeah, so I mean, it, it comes down to, I think, how you approach design as a philosophy and a, an actual discipline. The way I put it to my students, it's kind of the first day of class, one of the things I talk to them about is like, you play games and that's great. And playing games gives you a wonderful context to becoming a game designer. But before you start actually making games, you're no more of a game designer than you are, say, a chef. You've probably eaten every day of your life uh, until, you know, the students are whatever, between 20 and 24. I'm like, you've eaten every day of your life, but you're not a chef. It's a different discipline. The consuming the product and creating the product are two entirely different skills. And design in computer games kind of bore out of individual 
people learning how to do it, you know, 20, 30 years ago, there was no manuals and there was no computer uh, games courses at universities. Everyone was just a kind of a, what they used to call a bedroom programmer. <laughs> and those original games were kind of made by individual guys or very small groups of people on their own. And they were skilled at the technical discipline. They could program, they could code, but they were interested in games. But they were very much almost, you know, one-man bands in many ways. And thus design kind of got absorbed by the other disciplines in some ways. It sure. wasn't Game design wasn't a thing. It was just kind of, well, you know, someone's making this game and they're a programmer. And so they're also doing the design because they're the main programmer on the game. And it was only really in the last, I guess, 10, 15 years where games got big enough and more complex and needed more actual design thought, you know, where people started to go, well, I guess game design is an art and you do have to practice it because it's not just the ideas. You know, they say, you know, there's no job in a major studio for the ideas guy. Uh, <laughs> someone's not going to hire you to come in and just come up with ideas all day. That's not what design is about. Most game designers are actually extremely skilled, technical, technically competent people who are constantly solving challenges that their designs pose to them. You know, nothing beats actually trying to make something and figure it out. You know, even if it's just on paper, where you start doing prototypes, you kind of, well, I might start making a game and I make a paper prototype of it. And I say, there's this problem and there's this problem. And I start to answer those questions. And design is really the art of answering those questions elegantly and creating an experience for the player which will improve the experience that they get from playing the game. And as a designer, will allow you to create that, that experience that you intend for the player and kind of direct the experience so that it's very purposeful and you're kind of you're making design choices to push players in certain directions even if they don't understand that they're not explicitly aware of it you as the designer are responsible for them navigating whatever type of experience you're creating in a game and so how you teach game design is a relatively modern question because people understand how to teach people engineering or programming or art it's they've been around for much longer there's much more established methods of training that skill mm -hmm. whereas with design the schools are only just starting to realize now it's kind of well we've this is something that we've got to try and figure out a way to do well because design is different from engineering or art uh, and it has its own set of considerations and different types of people will be good at it uh, and it's not necessary to say, you know, an engineer can't be a good designer or an artist can't be a good designer. They absolutely can. It's just that it's a separate skill that requires developing in its own way. It's not just something that'll happen because you want to make games. <laughs> I think that's so interesting to point out. And I guess we should say, um, I believe your current title with Blizzard Entertainment is the design department manager. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, you know your stuff. You're You're actively working on this and then you also teach uh, in game design uh, at UC Irvine, like we said. Um, so, I mean, it's it's clear that this is stuff that you have, you've thought about, and this is a part of your understanding of your place in the industry. So, I mean, it, it's just fascinating to me because sometimes, uh, especially if you're not directly in that world or in that position, it does kind of feel like everything's thrown into a pot in terms of game development, game design, um, art, programming, engineering, all of it together. Um, and it's important to think of design as something very specific, a different discipline, as you say. 
Yeah. Yeah. No. And it, it, it comes from do it. Like I started out in the modern era, as it were, uh, doing mods and uh, doing working on uh, expansion modules and mods for games that already existed. So as going back 15, 16 uh, years, I was working in London as a uh, database, I guess, a database programmer was the best word for a newspaper in the UK, doing very boring subscription management stuff. Okay. Uh, but my passion was always games. And so I started to look into how do I get involved in this? And so I just started. I picked games that I liked. In my case, it was the original Mech Commander. It was kind of one of the first uh, 3D RTS games with a full 3D engine. And it was based on the Mech Commander license. And I just started to learn how to mod it. And in those days, there weren't actually many good mod tools. So we were literally decompiling and reverse engineering the code that, and the AI in particular that existed in the launch product and then kind of making our own maps and putting those out for the community to play in a very nascent, you know, the, kind of the earlier days of online gaming being prevalent on the internet. Uh, and that was kind of a big thing for me. I started to make games at that level and understand the engines. And I think the big one that kind of opened my eyes to what could be a career was when Neverwinter Nights came out uh, from Bioware. Ah, uh, sure. And it had the Aurora engine packaged with it. And the Aurora engine was this really powerful tool that once you got used to it, it was a little bit uh, uh, kind of obtuse at the beginning if you'd never used a game design tool before. But once you got used to it, you figured out there's this really powerful thing that I can create games like the Bioware games. You know, it's like I was a huge fan of Baldur's Gate and Icewind Dale and all of that kind of uh, pantheon of games. And now they were putting the tools for us to make it out to the player's hands. And to me, that was a very powerful thing. And today, you fast forward, you know, 15, 16 years, and you've got tool sets like Unreal and Amazon's Lumberyard and Unity completely free for people to just pick up and play with. Mm -hmm. And I think that's awesome. I, I can't imagine, I might have flunked out of college if I had those tools <laughs> when, I was, <laughs> when I was that age. Uh, because, you know, the opportunity that exists today to just dive in and start making games is you know it's never been there's never been a better time for it what do you think about that um i i know we're kind of jumping around in terms of the story of craig morrison um but you're bringing up some interesting points what do you think about it, it, there's never been a better time there's so many resources available is that always a good thing i mean is there too much of it at this point you could argue that it's definitely so when i work with the students at uci i'm it's right in front of me that it's very hard for those uh, students to break into the industry right you know it's more competitive than ever before uh you just have to look at the number of games released on steam you know almost on a daily basis now that visibility and getting your name out there or being able to do something that people notice becomes harder and harder and harder and the competition is higher and higher and higher and part of me sympathizes with that there's like i look back now and i'm like man i wonder if i would have made it you know, I, I look at the route, the route I took and I'm like, I wonder if I would have made it now. Because not only am I competing with that, all those other talented people who could make things, but there's also game design courses now. And you can go to, you know, you can actually go to college to study, to be a game designer. Right. Uh, which was unheard of when I was at college. Uh, 
and it makes you wonder. You're like, ah, I wonder if I wonder if I would have how I would have coped with this landscape uh, and all of these options. I'd like to think that I would have embraced it. And you know, you do this, you can make amazing things with these tools. But I think one of the most important parts that people sometimes miss or don't pay enough attention to is the opportunity for collaboration and meeting other people who also want to do what you do. Because I, I look back at those times when I was a modder and I worked on Met Commander and Met Commander 2, and I was part of a kind of a mod team. And none of us knew each other in person. We just met over the internet. And we were making these campaign mods for Met Commander where like seven or eight of us were all contributing different parts and different missions. Mm-hmm. And one guy was pulling it all together. And I learned so much from working with other people. We had an artist who was providing some art and an engineer who was doing some of the more complex stuff we wanted to pull off with the AI scripting in that game. And I look now and you've got all of this, these wealth of people looking to make games and looking to get into the game industry, but they don't always look at it as an opportunity to meet other like-minded people because they want to do it for themselves. They're like, oh, I've got to prove something. I've got to make this game on my own. When actual fact, you know, especially using engines like Unreal or Lumberyard, the fidelity that those engines lend themselves to almost means that you're better off looking for help. You know, work with artists, work with engineers, work with other people who are interested in design and build those collaborative skills as well. Because working in the industry, and certainly, you know, when you end up at a studio like I am here at Blizzard, you you end up where you collaborating is essential because you're no longer working on small scale games with a small team. You're suddenly working with, you know, 250 people plus teams on a studio with several thousand employees. Uh, And those collaboration skills, those skills of working with other designers and, you know, getting excited with artists and kind of firing each other's inspiration and getting other people excited about your ideas or you getting exciting about their ideas. That's really a fantastic skill to develop early and to figure out how you could work in a team. Because honestly, if you want to work in the game industry, in this day and age, there's very few roles that exist in the game industry where you get to work alone. That's so important. So I was interviewing another person, um, even actually earlier today, he was the CEO of a company called Playcrafting. Um, and all he kept talking about was collaboration. The idea that you know their entire company is built around bringing communities together of um, you know designers and developers, people creating games, and getting them to collaborate with each other. So to hear you say that, it just resonates even more with me. That um, you know how important collaboration in this industry specifically is. And I mean, this is coming from somebody who I imagine you know, kind of like you mentioned, you must work with some pretty massive numbers of people to put together games like uh, World of Warcraft and, and some of the other things that happen you know on a day to day basis at Blizzard. Yeah, I mean. The World of Warcraft team is a large team, and even we're nowhere close to, you know, you hear some crazy numbers for, you know, big teams, companies like Ubisoft, and the number of people working on, uh, you know, the Assassin's Creed games, or Watchdog 2, you know, you hear number, I'm not privy to the actual number of people that worked on those games, but you hear all kind of numbers thrown around anywhere from like 400 to 1,000. And then suddenly the World of Warcraft team even feels small, and, you know, we're (laughs) over 200 people. And you get the sense that, you know, you have to figure out 
the, the skills involved there are very different. So I, I over my years, both at Funcom and then at, at Blizzard, I've worked on teams of everything from a half dozen people all the way up to like, I think Conan, Age of Conan at its height was almost 400 people. Uh, and it requires a different set of skills when you're working on a small group where you can like turn your deck, you, you know, you can turn your chair around and talk to everyone on the team. Or when you are trying to marshal 400 people to work towards this more, uh, this larger objective, you know, like we do on a game like World of Warcraft. Uh, and you have to trust. You have to learn this trust in other people because it's not something that comes naturally to, to us as human beings, I think, sometimes. You know, trust is hard. It has to be earned. Uh, and creatively, it's even harder. Sure. So you're talking a bit about trust. Uh, and that's something I wanted to ask you about in terms of collaboration is... Uh, collaboration can be a really positive thing, but there are times when it can actually be really difficult, right? And and I think you and I, I'm sure, have both experienced both positive and negative collaborations and, and some tensions and struggles in that regard. How do you go about maintaining and managing and massaging those collaborations so that they continue to remain positive? Do you have any insight on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something particularly in a role like I have in the World of Warcraft team. Right. Uh, it, it's that's my almost my entire job is built around maintaining those trusts and having people trust each on the team, trust each other, because you can't on a game of that scale, you can't do ever. No one person can do everything, even if sometimes we might want to. You think, oh, I could do that better or it's just our natural inclination. But you have to learn to be able to let go and be able to say, no, you know, we've got super talented people over there doing their thing. And they're going to come up with something good to solve this challenge or that challenge. And it becomes a, about the kind of the loop of allowing people the right amount of freedom so that they feel ownership over the content that they're creating for the game. And they don't feel too micromanaged. Uh, I think that becomes very important on a game on that scale where you can't possibly micromanage every facet. You know, no one person could. You know, you could probably have a team of tense, you know, amazingly experienced mega designers, if such a thing existed. <laughs> and even they couldn't sit and try and micro the entire of the production that goes into a game like World of Warcraft. So what we have to do is have good oversight. We have to have good structures where our senior creative leads and our experienced people are paying enough attention so that they're giving good feedback and they're observing what's going on. But they're not hand-holding the team. They're allowing the team the creative freedom to make what they want to make of the game. Uh, one of the examples I always use to try and explain it to people is, you know the way when a, a big container ship is coming into port, the local pilot, a local sailor, will go on board and will join and will tell the captain where all the rocks are. He doesn't take over control of the ship. Like, it's not his ship, but he'll go, hey, you're coming into my port and there's rocks here, here, and here. You you know, don't hit them. <laughs> and that's really what the role of our senior and creative leads is in a game like World of Warcraft. They're there to lend their experience and help mentor the rest of the team and to point out where the rocks are. They're not necessarily going to tell the people exactly how to fix, but like, hey, just be aware of this thing here. You know, this game's been running for 12 years. We've got some super experienced people working on it. They can go, these are some of the dangers you've got to look out for. And it's really important that 
that messaging never feels overbearing to the team. It's kind of, it comes from a genuine place where you're kind of helping people avoid potential pitfalls. Uh, and obviously that has the knock-on effect of, you know, making sure we're more efficient and we're not making, you know, we're not repeating mistakes. And it still gives people plenty of room to be creatively autonomous and kind of put their own fingerprints onto that piece of content that they're making. Because we don't want them to feel like, oh, I'm just sat here and I'm just doing what someone else is telling me. That's kind of game implementation. It's not game design. Sure. We want our designers to be part of the process and putting their unique little fingerprint on that character or that particular quest or that system that they're working on. They do it in a way that only they would do it, but still within keeping within the philosophies that have made the game great in the first place. So the, those core design philosophies are very important to a company like Blizzard. It's why if you ever get to visit our campus here in Irvine, we have a, a great big bronze statue of an orc in the middle of our quad between our buildings and carved in bronze around it are our company values. And they're not just buzzwords that we, you know, we think we have to have because we're a big company and so you've got to have values. So let's make it. <laughs> they're actually things that people work and operate by on a daily basis on the teams. And so when you maintain the philosophy and you have people repeating philosophy and making sure that the team understand why that philosophy is important, the minor details of how they go about something don't matter quite as much in terms of having to be quote unquote like right, because you can get to a destination in a multitude of different routes as long as you're maintaining the vision of why that destination is important, you know, why that value uh, is important to us, you know, things like we have easy to learn, difficult to master as one of our core design philosophies. As long as the systems designers and the uh, content designers making the content are remembering that philosophy and using it to, as using it as a anchor or a foundation for the systems and content that they're building, then we're confident that the game's going to kind of hit the mark and we're going to be aimed in the right direction and it'll still feel like a Blizzard game. You know, because that's the challenge. How do we, with a team of over 200 people, you know, hundreds of artists, hundreds of designers and engineers working on this project, how do you make sure that the finished product still feels like a Blizzard game? It still feels like this cohesive thing, particularly on a game like World of Warcraft, which has been around for over a decade and has expectations from players as to how it will look and feel and how do you maintain that with such a large team and it's really through those kind of the emphasis on the philosophies and kind of making sure that the boundaries the box as it were that we work within that the box itself is well defined and then how we fill it in becomes less important than as the final result when we get there I come from a theater background, uh, so that's just my you know personal experience, cool. and you know fans of the show will know that I bring it up often. Um, but one thing that I was always taught, especially when I was in college, was this idea of artistic unification, in that you know there's some kind of director, and it's not the director's job to necessarily tell the performers or the crew or anything how to, on a micromanaging level, how to do everything, but kind of just guide them based on a vision that the director has to create something. Um, and it sounds like that's maybe what you're telling me is that, you know, you, and going back to what you said a little while ago, that, um, you know, a lot of your job is uh, maintaining those collaborations, making sure, you know, 
um, people are you know putting their fingerprints on it but keeping within the vision of what this you know decade plus old game is and what blizzard means and what that vision looks like um, so it's very cool yeah it's it's exactly like, you know i i studied film at college uh you know i said earlier there was no uh, game design degrees back then right uh and i studied film and it's the same kind of thing you you can watch a director or i think in my case what's often is even more interesting is watching the work of certain directors of photography in that when you watch movies for long enough with a critical eye as you kind of as you get taught to develop at a film school I can almost identify who the cinematographer was on a film, yet you could put them side by side and it wouldn't be obvious to someone who doesn't know the craft. Sure. Because they, the cinematographer adapted their style ever so slightly to fit within the director's vision for that movie. Uh, and it's kind of the same thing. Uh, you're right. It's, kind of, it's that parallel of what is important to it being a Blizzard game or what is important for your product, for the company that you work for? What is what what defines you? And then making sure that those things are maintained, even though you might have a large team or a different team or a constantly, you know, over the years, you know, I I wouldn't want to even imagine how many designers have touched WoW over the years. It's probably <laughs> it's probably in the it's probably over a thousand now. Sure. So you talked about the values and philosophies that you you know are engraved and, and built into the campus even of Blizzard Entertainment that kind of helped guide you in that, you know, unification of, of what makes a Blizzard game. Um, but of course, this is the Indie Insider podcast. We talk about, yep. you know, indie games here for the most part and relating everything back. I imagine that even though a lot of indie studios, uh, you know, maybe don't have the ability to carve in bronze their personal values and philosophies that guide them, those values and philosophies are still true to those studios, even on a smaller scale, even for very small teams, right? Absolutely. Uh, it's one of the first things that we cover when I work with students uh, is that you need to know what the vision for your game is. You know, we'll often, you'll often hear it referred to as having design pillars. You know, having the pillars of your design, which are kind of these core tenants that define what you want the experience to be like. And if you don't know what those core tenants are, it's very hard to follow through on a game project and have a the results at the end feel cohesive. Because you will be challenged all the way through development of a game, whether it's on a technical level, something your engine can or can't do, uh, an art level, maybe you haven't got the assets that you might want to pull off a certain thing. You're going to, be, you're going to have to make compromises, especially in the indie space. There's going to be these tough decisions that you've got to make where you don't really have a good answer. You just have the answers that, you're, that are available to you. And if you have those kind of values, if you have these pillars of your design, you can almost use them to prioritize those challenges and those decisions. You know, you can say, say if you're making a platformer, you know, kind of one of those, uh, think of those games like Dead Cells and uh, Hollow Knight, those kind of, the kind of Dark Souls inspired uh, 2D platformers sure, sure, sure. that you see a lot of a speed in the moment. The controls in those games are probably the most important thing about their design because they need to be both intuitive and they need to be reactive because the, the designers of those games are usually trying to challenge a player to pull off fairly challenging maneuvers with their gamepad or keyboard or whatever control mechanism they have. So the controls have got to be good. So if you are making a game like that, you might set your core design pillar as saying reactive controls. 
that is one of my design pillars, is this game will have reactive controls. And then later on, when you have a challenge, whether it's technical in the code or with the art or animation, and it might challenge that value, it's like, oh, we could make a compromise here and find the easy, you know, the easier fix of our two options would compromise the control scheme. And then you might be better off going, oh, maybe we need to go for the more expensive fix because that's one of the core tenets of our game. If our controls aren't good, players are going to have a harder time enjoying our game. So maybe this is somewhere where we don't compromise on. Whereas maybe something else, you know, whether it's a, a piece of art or the number of levels you're going to be able to produce or the animations in a boss fight, you might be like, oh, here we can compromise on this solution because it's not really going to endanger that central pillar of our design. Like whether the boss has five animations or four animations <laughs> isn't really going to impact whether the controls are tight. And then you can, so it can help inform where you're going to have to compromise because one thing you know going into indie projects is you're going to have to compromise somewhere. Right, of course, of course. Well, I am thrilled. This is an awesome masterclass of an episode that we are getting with Craig Morrison, um, the design department manager for Blizzard Entertainment and, uh, of course, the game world of Warcraft. So, Craig, uh, let's take a step back a little bit, take a breather. You and I, we've been doing some great uh, discussing, some talking so far. Um, I want to go back to Ireland, right, where you grew up? Um, yep. So I heard it in your accent when we first started talking. Um, it's interesting because it's it's still a bit there, but it's not overbearing. I've lived. A, I, I've moved around a lot, so sure. I uh, my uh, I lived in Ireland. I grew up in Ireland. I moved back to London in the UK for college, uh, and then I my parents were in the Middle East and in Spain, and then I went to work for Funcom in Norway and Oslo. So I lived in Scandinavia for a while. And then before moving to Blizzard, uh, I was creative director for the uh, Funcom's Montreal studio for three years. So I spent three years up in Montreal in Canada. So my accent's been kind of put through the ringer a bit <laughs> in terms of some people pick it out and some people can't. They're kind of like, where are you from? <laughs> and I kind of have this weird uh, kind of in between and you'll hear it on certain words and people are like, oh, you're Irish or you're Scottish or you're English. Sure. And I'm kind of like all of the above. It's fine. <laughs> uh, when you said Ireland, I heard it You kind of the way you said it so i like that a lot yeah. um but anyway you you're coding your first games um based off of guides from input magazine uh, yeah. which i'm sure you're gonna go show your students at uci now right <laughs> you gotta sh show them where it all began these are the the same things that we still apply to design now i like it yeah um and then you know from there you said you ended up going to college um for film right yep that's correct why film uh, I was always, I've always been interested in art and I've always been interested in visual art. And I was torn for a while coming out of school. I kind of didn't know whether I wanted to try and be an artist uh, or I wanted to do something more practical. And I finally went for the practical. I figured like I could go to college for three or four years and be an artist and go to art, or go to art school. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I'm already an artist. <laughs> what's four more i was kind of like i feel like i'm an artist maybe four years will teach me to be a better artist but i'll still be an artist out at the end of it and then finally i just kind of I've, i'd always loved film and i thought it was a really interesting another interesting visual medium that could you use to tell stories what i realized was actually i was much more interested in telling stories than i was creating art for art's sake and obviously at the time game design wasn't something you could do 
professionally it was like it, that was beyond my uh the realm of, of thinking at that sure, point sure, sure. so i went for film and i went i was at film school for three years and it taught me that i didn't want to make film uh, <laughs> i didn't want to make movies uh i enjoyed editing I, I learned that the process of making a film was actually quite tedious uh, to me or that i didn't i guess maybe i didn't have the patience for it uh lots and lots of takes lots of, you know those are great i have great respect for filmmakers because of the patience that it requires and the exacting nature of trying to get the right shots and being true to your vision uh so but i did i learned a lot i learned a lot from film school uh i learned that i really liked editing it was something that i i kept kind of kept doing as a as a hobby uh and i learned before digital happened so i actually learned to cut film uh, it was oh, like, cool. I think my, my college got a digital mixing desk, uh, like two years after I graduated. Uh, so we recorded straight to SVHS and we still shot on film and occasionally cut film. And it taught you to be very sure that what you were cutting was what you wanted to cut. Whereas now digital, it's a whole different, uh, a whole different world. Right. Of course. Uh, well, one thing that I'm always interested in is the idea that, people who are creating games need to have a variety of experiences or, or should have a variety of experiences to help better their ability to create games. Do you feel as though your experience and education in film has influenced you as a game designer? Absolutely. I, I think it couldn't. It would be very hard for it not to. They're both visual mediums. While they're not directly comparable, a lot of the tenants that are taught you in film school still end up being relevant to discussions that I have as a game designer now, you know, specifically uh, the framing of shots and those kind of uh, those good, solid visual storytelling techniques that are taught you as a filmmaker are still relevant to games. You know, how do you draw attention to an object? How do you draw the player's attention to a certain part of the screen? Uh, how do you, frame a vista when a player is turning a corner to create the most visual impact those are all things that film and theater and theater before it have kind of mastered to one extent and another and you can then apply it to games and then not only that but i also think pacing is a really important lesson that film production teaches you like how do you create a narrative that has a in film's case usually a beginning middle and end how do you pace it uh, what's the different pacing between, say, an action movie and a thoughtful indie character-driven piece? Mm -hmm. And those lessons are also important for player experiences in games because you, whether you realize it or not as a designer, you're creating the pace at which the player is experiencing your game. And if it was, you know, 100% speed all of the time, the player will tire of it quickly. So we design in these peaks and valleys into our experience that are very much akin to the way that you would pace a movie scene, you know, where you might be like, you know, this is the exposition part. And now we're moving into a slow character part to build up the next scene and then bang action sequence. And then you need a respite. You need a calm interlude before the next sequence. And in many ways, games are following some of the same tenets. It's how we keep players attention. It's how we create, allow them, create the experience that will allow them to flow through the experience without either tiring them or boring them. Excellent. I love it. You, you put it so well. I'm, I'm not even going to dig into it anymore. Um, 
you are like an interviewer's dream, just so you know. Like you, you make it all very easy. I'm enjoying it. Um, cool. So you're you're going to school for film, um, unknowingly gaining skills and experience that you will apply to game design in the future. Um, and you kind of mentioned this, but you were, um, you know, kind of modding at this point, games, learning design through modding. Were you doing that in school? No, it was after I left school. Okay. Uh, it, it was just, I kind of had, I went through the film school and then I didn't have a computer at home at my, cause I'd left, you know, my, my parents lived abroad and I was kind of in student housing. And so I was constantly moving around to different dorm rooms and different rental accommodations and I didn't have a computer. Okay. And I think when I first left school and I got a very boring job uh, working at Pizza Hut, uh, I think it was. Ah, I, excellent. One of, my, one of my first paychecks, I bought myself a computer again. So I was like, okay, I got a computer now. Cool. Uh, and it was at that point that then I started looking into... I, two things started that kind of would drive my career. I started playing MMOs, uh, massively multiplayer online games, and I was immediately kind of bewitched by them this idea that you could play over the internet and play with other people. And they enthralled me. I started with games uh, like Meridian and then Ultima Online and EverQuest was really the big one that kind of consumed my life at the time. All of this pre-World of Warcraft. Okay. And at the same time, I was kind of, my interest in making games was reborn because I had a computer now and I could, I could see these games that had the ability to mod them and create new content. And I'd always been as interested in making things for games, telling stories as I had in playing them. So I started, like I said, with Met Commander, Neverwinter Nights. Uh, I really started putting time into it. And I realize now looking back, I think the part we're getting to is kind of like where I started professionally and how I first got my break into games as a job. Sure. And I think we're very, a lot of us of my generation are very prone to thinking that it was just being at the right place at the right time and being a bit lucky because uh, we look at it now and it, man, it's so competitive. I don't know if I could have made it now then. But when I look back and I actually was like, hey, I was actually, I was working a day job. I was making mods, which I'd probably put like 15 to 20 hours a week into. And then pretty soon after that, at the same time, I was running a website uh, as an editor for uh, online games, for massive multiplayer games. Initially on my own, I started a fan site for a game called Anarchy Online that I would then later go on to work on. Uh, and then IGN, at the time, they were looking for more uh, online content, and they hired me to be an associate editor to work on MMOs. Oh, interesting. Uh, and do it for them. So I spent like three years as an associate editor working freelance for IGN. Uh, which is how I got to meet more industry people and I started writing more. So I was, I realized now I was like, I was literally putting a 35 to 40 hour week in on top of my day job, <laughs> you know? So I might, you might look back and say, oh, it was luck and it was right place at the right time. And I talked to the right people, but I'm like, I was working damn hard. You know, I was kind of, there was a lot of hours were put into that hobby, that pastime that then gave me the kind of combination of professional skills and private passion for games that then when I started to meet industry people through my job at IGN, uh, because I was living in London at the time and they were looking for people to, to do uh, E3 coverage, but they weren't willing to fly anyone out there like from the UK because they had plenty of people from the States. Right. So I just said, hey, if I pay my own airfare, can you get like, can I work E3? And they were kind of like, 
you live in London, you know, it's in LA, right? And I'm like, yeah, it's a long way, but I'm willing to do it. And they said, sure, you know, if you pay for your flight and your hotel, we will absolutely give you a press pass and you can join the rest of the team. Uh, and it was just after they just they'd mer- they just merged with GameSpy, I think, at the time. Okay. Uh, so it was a really big endeavor and there was like 50 of us from IGN, but no one really had any specific roles for us. We just had press badges and they were like, yeah, go cover the games that you want. You know, go cover the games that your sites cover. Uh, so I just took it as an opportunity to go and talk to as many people as possible as I could. It's where I first really met the, some of the guys from Funcom that would then later offer me a job. But uh, I met with people from Blizzard. I interviewed Richard Garriott. Uh, I basically went and tried to talk to as many MMO people as I could because I was just going to, you know, it was an expensive trip for me on my own dime. And I was just determined to get every single penny out of it I could. And it's amazing over the years how many people I've met that I first met through that endeavor, through going to E3 that time and paying my own way there uh, and then just doing, you know, going and seeking out interviews because uh, I had the press badge. So uh, and then years later, you work with some of them and you meet them professionally. You're kind of like, do you remember, you know, and they don't remember. <laughs> they never remember because they're like, that was probably one of 50 interviews they did that day. Right. Uh, but like for me, it was formative and it was really interesting and I kind of soaked it all in and tried to get as much about how the industry worked as I could so that when the opportunity came around I didn't feel that I was diving in blind I felt that I had a fairly good idea about the pros and cons of trying to make it in the games industry at that point this would have been uh 2004 uh weird coincidence I actually started working at Funcom the day that World of Warcraft came out oh wow that is a weird coincidence yeah it was. It was kind of like, oh, when I, I look back, I think it was when, I, when I'd spent 10 years at Funcom, I was like, oh, yeah, I've been here 10 years now. And w- World of Warcraft was celebrating its 10th anniversary at the same time. And you're like, huh, OK. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, well, I'm sure that that uh, plane ticket to E3 ended up paying for itself in the long term of it your abs- career. It absolutely right. did. <laughs> well, I mean, there are some themes that we end up stumbling upon often on the Indian Center podcast, one of which is seizing opportunities, uh, not just being in the right place at the right time and getting lucky, but actually seizing that opportunity, and then networking. And it sounds like both of those are a big part of what you were doing with IGN um, and what you were doing at that specific E3. What do you think about, um, you know, I guess in hindsight, but also, you know, for those who are might be out there trying to hustle and trying to make it the idea of seizing opportunity and the idea of, of networking, what are, what are good ways to network? I mean, you're on the uh, other side of that now, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, whenever I go to GDC, I, I probably talk to hundreds of students every day. Uh, and I, I make myself available for that and open and I enjoy it. Uh, I think I would recommend everyone in that space that, that, you know, it, it certainly will never hurt. Uh, as long as you're respectful and you are polite and you're not, you know, forcing yourself on people, but you're, you know, especially if you ask in advance, you know, some of the times if you know someone that you really respect or you would love to talk to, I think most people, certainly in my case, and I know many other designers with, uh, you know, that have been in the industry as long as I have, if someone contacts them, say, through any social channel that they're active on, say, Twitter or uh, something like that, and if someone reaches out and says, hey, I'm a game design student, I would really love to, you know, 
just to talk to you for a few minutes. I'm going to be at GDC. Would that be okay? You know, that's even better because you're not surprising the person and they can say, yeah, I'm, I'm busy most of the days, but maybe, hey, I've got a window here. You know, I'd be quite happy to talk to you uh, about careers and games or whatever it is. And of course, not everyone's going to say yes, but I think there's never any harm in asking. You know, I, I'm certainly not going to hold it against someone if they, you know, oh, please talk to me. And I'm like, oh, I can't. I've got meetings that day or whatever. Uh, but the more you can interface people, interface with people positively, the bigger impression that you make on someone. Uh, some of the people that I've hired over the course of the last four years on World of Warcraft, when we hire especially new people and kind of what we call associates, uh, associate level, associate designers. It's kind of the entry-level position at Blizzard. Sure. Uh, we get lots of applications, obviously. Like when we, <laughs> when we put a, an associate designer position out, we get lots of applications and there's lots of people interested. And sometimes that coincides with an event like GDC. Sometimes it doesn't, but people will often come up and ask about them. And I think if you're able to create positive impressions in person, it's always going to be... I'm going to remember your name or I'm going to, oh yeah, I see this resume. This is that person that spoke to me. I recognize this game that they made. Uh, you know, I want to see that they've been making games. That's really the biggest thing I'd say to people. <laughs> Networking is fine. You know, you can talk to people all day long, but you better be making games. Like I, 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 it amazes me the number of times I speak to someone at GDC or I speak to a student who wants to get into game design and they're like, game design is my number one passion in the world. I absolutely want to be a game designer and it, I want it more than anything else in the world. And I'm like, okay, what did you do about it last week? What did you do about it last month? What have you done about it this year? Show me the game you've made. And it always, it blows me away. The number of people are like, oh, I haven't gotten to that yet. And I'm like, are you crazy? I'm like... Like, well, like we talked about earlier, you know, things like Unreal are free. You know, I would have killed for Unreal when I was 18 years old. Sure. You know, that would have, I just, it blows my mind. And I'm like, it has never been easier to make a game and to try and bring your own vision to life. Now, sure, you're not going to create Skyrim out of the box. Like, that's not a one-person project. You should maybe lower your ambitions a little. <laughs> but you could create a quest in Skyrim. You know, Skyrim has a great piece of mod software bundled with it you know have you tried making a quest in skyrim and i will always be able to tell the difference in application uh, whether we test people or whether we interview people for a role nothing beats having made games and they don't even have to be good games they don't even have to be games that you were solely responsible for you know student projects are great for that indie projects or mod projects with teams where you just meet people online but be making games because you've it's how you learn those decision-making skills. And that's what we're interested in. We're not necessarily interested in how many hours you've played in World of Warcraft. We're interested in whether you've thought about the process that we put into making the game. Uh, it's one of the kind of, I think the best way to put it is there was a question I used to ask in interviews. And I used to, even before I worked on World of Warcraft, I'd start asking people what was their favorite MMO. And it was usually World of Warcraft because it's the biggest game on the market. Of course. And you'd say, okay, what's your favorite class? What class do you play? And they'd tell me, they'd be like, oh, Paladin. I play Paladin. Oh, cool. Tell me what's cool about Paladin. And they'd tell me what's cool. And then I'd go, okay, so in all the patches and all the expansions that Blizzard have put out, what was the single stupidest change that they made to Paladins? What pissed you off? And they'll almost always instantly be able to tell me 
it'll be like, oh, it was this change in Cataclysm and they nerfed this ability and it really sucked. They were dumb. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's cool. What do you think the designer was trying to achieve when they made that change? And if they go blank like a deer in the headlights, I know I'm not talking to a designer. I'm talking to a player who's really enthusiastic about something. Because a designer should naturally have asked themselves that question. They should have looked at something that they didn't like and gone, this change seems really bad to me. Like it seems like a really ill-advised change to the game. When I see that, when I play games now and I see a change, I, I want to understand it. I want to like, what, what were they trying to do? You know, what was their goal? What was their ambition with that change? Because I want to understand how they think. I want to understand what kind of challenges that they were facing. I want to become a better designer by understanding the changes that other people made to their game. And it's a really, it's a subtle difference, but it really underlines the people that can answer that question. They're almost always good hires because they've thought about it They're And they, they answer, and if they answer it quickly and kind of, they might not always be right, about their reasoning, but <laughs> they thought about it. You know, they, they actually critically thought about it and go, well, I think they were trying to achieve this, but I don't think they succeeded. But as long as they're thinking in that way, it's a great, it shows me that they're thinking about games on a critical level and they're thinking about the complexity of the decisions that go into creating even the simplest of game structures. So make games because that's how you learn. Sure. I mean, I think the number one piece of advice, because of course, at the end of the episode, I will ask you to share a piece of advice, just like all the guests do on the show. Uh, but maybe the number one piece of advice that we get is, you know, that Nike advice, just do it, uh, you know, start making games. And and you, audience, you're hearing it now from uh, the design development manager from Blizzard Entertainment on World of Warcraft, that this is what you should be doing, make games. And that's, you know, that's how you get that experience and that's how you you know end up working at uh one of the most revered studios in the industry so um craig thank you so much for sharing that's very sound advice i appreciate it so uh tell me a little bit about how you know you're you're hustling you meet the guys um at funcom at this e3 yeah and then you end up getting a job with funcom how does that happen uh so originally they it was a very strange experience. Uh, doesn't really happen like this anymore, I wouldn't think. So basically, <laughs> I got a call saying, in the world of small coincidences, that their community manager at the time had been hired by Blizzard to go and work on World of Warcraft. Uh, and they were a relatively small studio at the time. I think I was like the 60th employee when I was hired by Funcom. Uh, and they were looking for a replacement uh, community manager. And I said, well, I'm not really interested in the PR and community side of it long term but I would absolutely come and do the job for you as long as you understand that I'm going to be trying to get a job on your game teams and that I'm going to want to make the game and you'll have a hard time holding me back once I'm there. You know, it's a passion of mine. I really want to be able to do this one day and I want to prove to you that I could do it. So as long as we do it on that understanding, absolutely, I'm completely open to it. Uh, and so we went back and forth and I had to quit my job in London, which was much better paid. Uh and moved to a different country. And I went from living in like one of the most expensive cities in the world to moving to an even more expensive city, uh, which was in, in, in Oslo in Norway, which was a very strange experience. It was the first time living in Scandinavia. 
Uh, I had an awesome time there. It was a, it's a fantastic city and a great country. And I started at Funcom and I basically held true to my promise. You know, I, as soon as I got there, I, we did, I, I think I was community manager for about maybe 16, 17 months uh, before my opportunity came on the game team, just again, from grabbing something, hustling. They were, they were basically, we were shipping a game called Dreamfall uh, on the Xbox and they were a little bit behind schedule. So a bunch of people from my project, from Anarchy Online, were moved across uh, to work on Dreamfall to get it out. And they said, hey, someone needs to take care of production on Anarchy as a kind of a, a producer, project manager uh, for a few months while the other guys go away and, and help get Dreamfall out the door. And I just kind of stuck my hand up and said, I'll do it. You know, I'm quite happy to be project manager for a couple <laughs> of months. Uh, and then so I got more involved in the design. And then from there, it was like, oh, that we need some more people to do item design. I was like, I'll do that. And I kind of just kept sticking my hand up. And then, like I said, about a year and a half in, they moved the both the producer and the game director for Anarchy at the time went to work on Age of Conan, which was Funcom's next big project. And I just stuck my hand up again and went, I'll be game director. I was like, I know the game. I love it. I've now worked on the kind of the design side of it for a year, you know, for a, ha a year, year and a half. Uh, you know, let me do it. Uh, and they said yes. And uh, so I got to be game director and in a really, it was a great space to learn because we were a relatively small team at the time. I think uh, we were like 18 people. Okay. And uh, we released an expansion uh, last Eden for uh, Anarchy Online and we were starting on the next one. And so I'd been on Anarchy for probably just over a year, year and a bit when Conan launched and the founder and game director left the company. He moved on. He'd kind of launched the game and he wanted to do something different. And they were looking for a game director. And so they asked me if I wanted to move on to Conan because uh, I'd done so well on Anarchy. And I was like, oh, sure. Okay. You know, I was like, well, it was a huge move at the time. I think on the on the Friday night, I, I was responsible for like 25 people. On the Monday morning, I was responsible for 400. Oh my gosh. It was, it was kind of this big, it was like, wow, okay, this is a bit of a change. And I learned very fast how to delegate and how to, uh, uh, how to make that adjustment. And I had lots of, I had good people supporting me and they did a really good job of kind of helping me with that transition. Uh, but it was a big task. You know, Conan had come out and it sold really well. I think we'd sold like 1.4 million copies, but it wasn't retaining customers very well. Uh, so I had a big task. We had a big task ahead of us on the team of how do we stabilize the subscriber base and how do we get things stable again so we can make an expansion. And we managed to do that. You know, the game's still running. Uh, you know, and we worked with an incredibly talented team. We did an expansion on Age of Conan on uh, called Rise of the Godslayer, and I worked with a great team. That was a very large scale project. Uh, we had a live team making the original game better. Then we had another small team, smaller team, but still think like 80 people making the expansion uh and yeah it was a great time I, I, it was definitely being thrown in the deep end and i learned a lot i had to learn a lot very quickly and most of it was probably just from sticking my hand up and saying i want that i want to try and i guess not screwing it up too badly because they kept letting me <laughs> well one thing i want to ask you about within that story was um that anecdote you told about you know on that friday you were managing what 18 20 people Something and, like that. Yeah, and then uh, that Monday you were managing 400. I mean, or, you know, roughly. I mean, yeah. how do you handle managing such a large number of people? How do you go from, I guess, you know, 
are the skills different? Do these skills expand? Um, you know, I'm thinking about these smaller indie teams who, you know, then maybe they go into, they step into a larger company or, you know, they want to yeah. work at a larger company in the long run. What is it like, uh, those management skills? I think it's, we talked earlier about trust. Yeah. And I think a lot of it comes on learning where, who you can trust and how to trust them. Because on a, if you're the game director or the executive producer or you're in charge of, the, you know, you're given the responsibility for that large of a team, uh, you have to learn very quickly that you can't do everything. There's no way you're going to be micro, able to micro all of those decisions. So you have to identify people that are good at their job and can you can delegate to and you have to trust them. Like they're not going to do everything just the way you would. But if they're doing it well and the content's good, that doesn't really matter on a game of that scale. Like there's, you're, you're, again, you're going to define the philosophies and say, I want us to philosophically align with this design goal. And if you instill that philosophy and at least paint the picture for people of this is what we want to aim towards, and then you have to trust them to go away and do it. And sure, you're still providing oversight and checking in and kind of making sure that no one goes off into the weeds, but you have to learn that trust. And I think that's honestly true whether you're managing 300 people or whether you're managing three. Uh, because if you trust people, that goes both ways and you start to develop those really good working relationships with people where they enjoy working with you and you enjoy working with them. And sure, you might fight on occasion, you might disagree, uh, you might not always see eye to eye, but if you have that trust and respect for each other, it makes the creative relationship a hell of a lot easier in the long run. Well, and you were at Funcom for a pretty respectable amount of time, so I imagine those things had to be in place, um, you know, to some capacity you had to focus on that trust and, um, you know, how you're capable of working with those people for so long. Yeah, I was at uh, Funcom for just over a decade, uh, which in games industry terms is like forever. <laughs> you know, you, you talk to people and they move studios after every game and, you know, maybe they ship a game and then they have to move on to another studio or maybe even if they stay at the same studio, they'll move on to a different team to work on a different game. You know, whereas I've been in the industry for like 15, 16 years now and I've worked at two companies and I've worked on three games uh because yeah. those games don't end you know they, they kind of they keep going and we keep adding to them and we keep getting to redo them uh, so it is a very different set of skills i actually prefer it because i think it does help build those relationships and you start to understand people a lot better and you can foster long-term relationships i think knowing who you work well with that's almost gold dust in this industry and it doesn't surprise me when I see people who move between studio and studio, they'll often, you'll see them moving clusters. You know, there's like this group of people that worked on this game and then you see, oh, they're all working on this game over here. And that's because they know they enjoy working together. So either whether they moved as a group or whether one of them goes first and then go, when they're hiring, they go, hey, I know this guy, you know, uh, or I worked with her at my last studio and she's awesome. We should bring her across because collaborating is hard especially creatively sure. like you have to give up your own ideas and you have to share them and you have to be willing to listen and be willing to accept that other people might not solve problems exactly the way you would and so once you meet and get to know someone that you can do that easily with and you're comfortable with and you trust them that's an incredibly powerful thing and you shouldn't 
I always recommend to people, you shouldn't give that up easily. If you're considering changing teams or changing career or moving to a different studio, you know, think long and hard about how much the people around you contribute to your success or not. Because sometimes it's not just, you know, sometimes you are better as part of a whole that is more than just you. Uh, you know, so I've seen some people who've moved studios for what was on paper a better job, but then go back six months later because they're just like, that, that wasn't for me. And I missed working with this guy or <laughs> I, worked, I missed working with her or whatever it was because they realized that part of the magic is actually in the relationships that you have with other designers and how well you work with each other. Well, let's go ahead and dive into that because you made a pretty big jump yourself. Uh, I mean, you were working at Funcom. Um, at the end of your time there, you were creative director in Montreal. You mentioned that earlier, yeah. right? Um, and then you ended up jumping over to Blizzard. How did that happen? Uh, how did that happen? Uh, <laughs> I, I asked myself that question still to this day. How did that happen? Uh, no, I think I was, I think they first, I first met with a Blizzard headhunter after I was speaking on a panel at PAX East in Boston uh, a few years ago. There was a panel on the future of MMO gaming uh, and I was on it with a bunch of really cool folk, uh, Colin Johansson from ArenaNet. Uh, Kurt Schilling was on that panel, I think. Oh, cool. 38 Studios was still a thing. Yeah, being being on a panel with Kurt Schilling in Boston <laughs> is that's quite a thing. Sure. Uh, you know, you know who the home team is. Uh, <laughs> and so it was a really cool panel, really interesting. Lots of cool, diverse folk from the game industry, and we were talking about the future of MMOs. And one of the people, one of the recruitment guys from Blizzard introduced himself afterwards and just said, hey, stay in touch. I think you might be a really good fit for one of our teams uh, if an opening turned up. Uh, and so I think it, we talked about a couple of things early on and then nothing really materialized. And then I got a call about a, uh, my, I was originally hired to work on Project Titan, which obviously, uh, is well known now as the project that uh, that Blizzard cancelled, and I literally never got to work on it because I was hired, and then I had to wait for my work permits to come through. Okay, and uh, the project got cancelled in the interim. Uh, but rather than lose the opportunity, they were Blizzard were really cool about it. Jeff Kaplan, who's now the game director on Overwatch, uh, did a really awesome thing. Because kind of, I interviewed with a lot of people to get the job on Titan, like a lot. Uh, the interview was quite extensive and I talked with a lot of the key creatives at Blizzard and they kind of, they said, Hey, this thing's happening. Titan's not going to, uh, you know, we're the position that you, we hired you for doesn't exist anymore, but the guys from world of Warcraft were on your interview and they really liked you. We, and it was kind of weird. They, they said to me, would you mind coming and talking about working on world of Warcraft? And I was kind of like, would I mind? I'm like I, I've I've played WoW since Alpha. It's probably one of my favorite games of all time, and Blizzard are asking me if I would mind coming to talk about it. And I was like, absolutely. When do you want me? I'll be. I'll come. You know, I'll fly down and we can talk about it. Uh, and so I interviewed again. I talked to the guys from the World of Warcraft team, uh, and they were like, No, we totally. We'd love you to come and do the same thing that you were going to do for Titan. You can come and do it for WoW. Uh, and yeah, so that was a, I interviewed twice, uh, which was very, very nerve wracking sure, and very extensive. There's lots of people uh, that you had to talk to. We're very, Blizzard, we believe strongly in finding the right culture fits and finding people that kind of will believe in those philosophies that we have carved in bronze around the orc. Uh, 
and I've always loved Blizzard games, especially World of Warcraft. And so it was, I felt like as I was talking to them, it felt very easy for me because I'm like, these are people on my level. They love the same games that I love. We have the same shared passion. And I think that's one of the things that kind of underlies everything at Blizzard is it's, we're a game studio like every other. And I've, you know, having worked at Funcom and worked in Montreal, which is a huge hub for gaming, you know, there's lots of studios up there from Ubisoft and EA and, uh, Warner Brothers all have big studios up there. So I've kind of got a lot of exposure to how the industry works and sure. the types of positions. And Blizzard isn't really any different. We have deadlines and we're working hard. But whenever people ask me kind of like, what's it like working at Blizzard? What's the difference? You know, what sets them apart? How do they get to make these cool games that they make? And honestly, what always resonates with me is how much everybody, and I mean everyone at Blizzard, loves the games that we make. No one's doing it for a job. No one's doing it for a paycheck. They're doing it because they genuinely want to make World of Warcraft better. Like, keep raising the bar 12 years on. We we want the game to keep getting better and better and better. And I think that's an awesome thing. And it, it kind of, it's the fuel that drives why we do what we do. It's this amazing passion that you just walk around and we know that everyone you're talking to plays the game. Uh, and it's important to them. So when you're making those design decisions, when you're trying to decide what's right for the game, everyone is invested in making the right call. It's never just a you know, project management call. It's never just a resource call. It's never just a financial call. It's about what'll make the game better because that's what we all care about. And that's so important, right? Even for the small indie teams to kind of wrap it all back in is you have to all want to be there and you have to all believe in it. It's not just the trust in each other and each other's skills, but it's the trust and belief in, in what you're creating, right? Absolutely. If you love the game that you're making, even you know the smallest game to the largest game, loving it and really wanting to pour passion into it and from it to come from that kind of that place that excites all of us, you know, that place we had when we were a kid that was just, you know, thinking up games in our head and characters. And, you know, I think every designer has that 10 year old inside of them still. And we get to do that now and we get to make these things real and share them. And that's incredibly powerful. And I think it's something that even the smallest team every indie team, every individual person working on their passion project should know that however hard making games gets, and it gets hard sometimes, always remember that passion. Remember why you're doing it. Remember why you love the idea of this game in the first place. And maybe if your game has drifted away from those ideals, figure out how to get it back towards what you wanted to achieve. Have those pillars that we talked about earlier you know, make sure that you know what your game, what you want your game to be and why you want it to be. Because if you, you know, never chase what the, what someone else tells you your game should be, uh, you know, it's that old adage about if you're just trying to clone something or copy something, it's not really the same passion that's driving you. If like, if you want to make, and it doesn't matter how complex the game is, like if you're passionate about match three games, be passionate about it. Make the best <laughs> damn match three game that you can make in the coolest way possible. It's not a bad thing that it's a match three game. It can, be, can still be cool or interesting. I mean, I always point my student, look at Angry Birds. You know, there were 
hundreds if not thousands of physics-based knock-things-over games before Angry Birds came along. Mm -hmm. But Angry Birds had a certain something about it. You know, it was just... Whether it was the cute birds or those pigs or they're stealing the eggs or what the hell's going on with the birds and the pigs, I don't understand. <laughs> but it made me ask those it's kinda it's like this cool, weird meta world building that's going on within this physics puzzler that makes me pay attention to it. And I think that can't be understated. Someone put a little bit of care or extra attention. Maybe it was just the artist that worked on it. I don't know. You know, I don't work at Rovio. I, you know, maybe it was just one artist that went, I want to make this characterful and I'm going to put my everything into kind of making this cool little funny story. Those are the differences that separate you and the game that you're working on from what is now those thousands of other games that other people are working on and might look very similar to yours. You have to find some way of differentiating them. And honestly, the best way you can do that is to be true to your passion and to be chasing something that you know you want to play. I think Mike Morheim and the guys who founded Blizzard always said they made Blizzard because they wanted to make the types of games that they enjoyed playing. And I think that's great advice now as it is, you know, uh, 25 plus years on. Uh, it, it's still valid. You know, make the games that you want to play and that you're passionate about because you'll always make them better than if you're trying to make the thing that the genre, you know, that you think is the cool thing in the genre right now because you want to try and, you know, maximize the potential of someone else's user base. I I'm never sure that can be totally successful. Now, it's different if you're passionate about it and you're like, no, I want to make a better version of that. Like, I want to make a cool, ver you know, I've got a cool twist on it that I want to do. And that's a totally different thing. And you could be really successful with that. But the whole just like, oh, you know, I don't know. Player Unknown Battleground is really popular this month. I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a game like that. And you're like, okay, but why? What's going, to, what, what's going to set your game apart? And those are the questions you really need to know. It's not good enough just saying, I'm going to make something that I think will be popular. It's kind of, no, you're doing it wrong. Make something that you care about. Make something that you're passionate about. I'm feeling inspired. I like it. This is great. <laughs> Uh, well, now you are working at Blizzard Entertainment. You're working on one of your favorite games of all time. Uh, and you also are teaching at UCI. How did you, and did you know you wanted to teach? Uh, not specifically. I mean, I, I, when I was up in Montreal, we'd done a couple of outreach programs with universities to kind of help students and bring students into the game dev studios and, uh, and work with them. Uh, we did a really pro cool program up in Montreal with the Canadian government, uh, through the Grand Initiative up there, which is kind of a, it was an initiative where we took, I think it was 12 students from across Canada who'd never met. And we brought them into the studio for a summer and had them make a prototype of a game over the course of, I think it was 14 weeks. Uh, it was kind of weirdly like a reality TV show. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't filmed, but it was just like that whole setup. 12 strangers, come and make a computer game. Uh, but they had a really cool time and it, it showed me that I enjoyed mentoring. I enjoyed passing on my experience, uh, which I don't think I, I kind of, sometimes you have a hard time valuing what your, what your experience might give somebody. And I think it's only when you have a chance to mentor people that you're actually like, oh, hey, I do know all these ads. Like I've got a fair amount of knowledge that might help them avoid some of these problems that they're facing. 
And so when I moved down to Irvine and was uh, working at Blizzard, Blizzard has a partnership with UCI where they provide mentorship to the UCI games program initially where they were what they the students have what they call a capstone project okay. where for their final two terms of their senior year, they're making a game in teams. So effectively, they're making a game over the course of 20 odd weeks uh, with, a, with a team of other students. And Blizzard always had a pro, pro, program where some Blizzard designers and engineers would go and meet with the students every couple of weeks, just for a couple of hours every other week, to check in on their projects and give them some advice, kind of like a loose mentorship project. Uh, so I volunteered to take part in that because I was interested. And then in the process of doing that, they got talking to the professors and they were like, yeah, we don't really have anyone to teach the students game design itself. And so they asked us for some advice and we were talking to them about some of the things they might look at to teach the students some fundamentals. And then like four or five months later, they just came back to us and said, hey, we don't think anyone could do it better than you described it. So would you just like to come and teach them? <laughs> uh, you know, they were, and they were great. The, the dean, the, you know, that faculty was amazing. And he kind of gave us carte blanche to kind of work with the professors and craft our own uh, kind of syllabus for the course of what we would teach and what, what fundamentals we felt were important. Uh, and yeah, so this is the third year that we've I've taught that course. Uh, so it's been really fulfilling. It's great working with the students. And it's amazing to kind of... There's For me, I think having worked on games for long enough now, while I still get a thrill from seeing the things we made come to life, I almost get as big a kick out of seeing the things that other people that I've helped have seen their creations come to life. You know, when people that used to that uh, I used to work with have formed their own studios and made their own games in the indie space, or the games that the students make for their projects, seeing being able to inspire others to get into games and f be able to create their own things—that's really powerful. You know, and it it's kind of it's an added incentive for why I still do those things. That's incredible. Um, that's so great that you found uh, that additional something that is. Uh, that really inspires you and, and gets you excited. So lights that fire in you. That's great. Uh, well, I know you can't talk much about, um, you know, specifics of World of Warcraft, but I'm curious if you've thought about this at all. Uh, what is what does the future look like for you? What does the next few years look like? Is it just continuing at Blizzard and exploring new things and continuing to teach? Uh, most likely. I, I tend to I tend to not the future always changes. So <laughs> I, I tend to be really bad at predicting where I'm going to be in five, 10 years time. People ask me that question and you're like, every time I would have answered it, I would be totally wrong. Uh, you know, if you told me five years ago that I'd be at Blizzard and teaching at, at a university, I probably would have thought you were crazy. Uh, <laughs> and likewise, 15 years ago, if you told me that I'd have a career in the game industry, I probably would have told you you were crazy. Uh, I, I would love to. I, I think, you know, Blizzard is obviously a great place to work. Uh, I'm very blessed that I'm able to be teaching and you know giving back in some way, and I'd love to be able to continue that. Uh, but I think I'll just keep. I always challenge myself to. You, you should always challenge yourself to keep learning, keep trying new things, keep pushing into spaces that you haven't been in before, or that right now it's teaching for me, uh, and using my experience to help the next generation of developers, you know, make the game. And honestly, I'm really excited at Blizzard to see what the next generation of our designers both do with World of Warcraft and do with the other games that we're going to create uh, and seeing the people that uh, work with me kind of 
what they're capable of over the next five, 10 years. And I'm sure that there's going to be really cool stuff that I get to sit back and say, oh, you know, I was a small part of making that. And this is so amazing uh, that we get to be a part of so many people's lives and, and play, that play these games. Well, Craig, thank you so much for sharing your story and sharing your insight. I mean, we have talked for a while. This is a long episode, but I'm so grateful. It's been a fantastic one. Um, definitely one of my favorites. Uh, and you've just Thank shared you. so much. So I, I so appreciate you coming on the show and taking your time. No, it's been great. So before I let you go, we have two things to do. Um, Shoot. We, we don't need to talk uh, too much about the broader scope things. I think we hit a lot of that in the middle there in the story when we jumped yeah. around. Um, but... I promised a very good friend of mine that I would ask you a question that he wanted okay. to know the answer to. He's a huge Blizzard fan. Um, his name is Zach Johnson. And uh, I think he's a bit more of an uh, Overwatch fan mm-hmm. than World of Warcraft, but he's a huge Blizzard fan. And uh, his question for you was, what was your biggest mistake game design-wise? And oh. how did you how did you address that? There's been way too many of them. I think, <laughs> to, uh, it's actually a really good question. Because, that's, that's why I grabbed it. I think it's great. Yeah, no, it's an awesome question because honestly, we learn more when we fail than when we succeed. Sure. And I think each failure better equips us for the future. And I've always said to everyone that I've worked with and the students when I teach, I'm like, I will never be mad at you for making a mistake because you were trying something and it didn't work. It's like, I'll be furious with you if you repeat a mistake because that shows you didn't learn. Uh, as to my own, man, I pro- I think the one that... Probably the one that disappointed me the most personally was there was a couple of times on uh, a game like Age of Conan where there's a lot of decisions that you make and I was learning how to be a good game director then, I think... And it's really hard to realize when you have to go against public opinion of your players and deny them something that they want or they need. And a couple of my biggest mistakes were actually pushing features out too early or before we tested them enough because I knew the players really wanted them. Uh, I remember one feature in particular, which we were working on, it was a PvP feature, And we put it on the test server for a little bit and it got amazing feedback from the players. Their initial impression was really positive. Uh, And we hadn't had that with a PvP feature in a while. Uh, I would say it was safe to say amongst the true diehard PvP fans, we had a fairly bad reputation. They didn't like me. They (laughs) They felt I didn't understand PvP. And I always took that, you know, I always took that to heart and I was trying my best to find some content for them that we could do. And we had this feature and it went out on our equivalent to the PTR of the, you know, our test realm, our test server. And we got amazing feedback. They were like, this is amazing. This is just what we wanted. It's open world. It's, you know, and so there started to come this clamor to release it. And I was kind of like, the designer in me was going, we haven't tested this enough. They're going to break it. They're going to find exploits. And I'm not quite sure how yet, but they're going to ruin their own fun because players, as soon as they find an exploit, someone's going to use it and it's, you know, it's going to lead to a degenerative experience. Of course. And so this was knocking around in the back of my head, but at the same time, the our community guys and all of the, and the team were really excited about something that people were reacting positively to. 
and we had a release window because I think at the time our expansion had been pushed back a little, like we had a three month delay or something. So people are, my bosses, oh, it would be even greater. It's an added benefit because this could bridge the gap. Here's some content that we could throw out that would bridge the gap. And I didn't think about it anywhere near as much as I should. I just kind of went, the players love it. The team think it's a great idea. My bosses think it's a good idea and it'll bridge a gap. Oh, I'm going to silence that voice in my head that says this is a really bad idea <laughs> and I'm just going to go with it. Uh, and I did. And players were exploiting it within a day. And it was later kind of maligned as the worst feature we ever added to the game. Oh, wow. Uh, like the, the PvP players hated it. The same people that had, you know, uh, sang its praises on the test realm hated it on the live environment once they actually saw what other players did with it. Uh, and it was a bit of a disaster. And even though we we patched it up and later on it became a pretty decent feature, no one was interested because it had burnt. You know, you only get your... I learned, like, you only get that first chance at a first impression. Sure. And we absolutely burnt it with that one. And it was always... So it was always a very pivotal lesson for me because I effectively told my guts to shut up. You know, it's like part of me knew I was making the wrong decision as I was making it. But there was all these compromises that made sense when people presented them. Uh, and I didn't question it anywhere near as much as I should. And that was a very important lesson for me. It was kind of like it, it taught me uh, how to process information coming in. So that was one of them. But there's literally hundreds of others. <laughs> there are. You learn You learn from your mistake. I think uh, I, remember who, I think it was Josh Mascara, who is the game director on, Diab on Diablo 3's expansion okay uh on reaper and we we're taught i was talking with him about it one day and he was kind of like the best designers i've worked with are the ones that have learned how to deal with failure you know they 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 really are the people who are still standing after all their failures they just get back up and they go again and they vow never to repeat that mistake and they learn and really that's what experience is you know people say you're an experienced game designer and that experience usually means You've learned 101 ways not how not to do something. Sure. And you usually learn that by doing it. <laughs> you know, it's like, I did it the wrong way. I realized in hindsight it was the wrong way, and I will resolve not to do that again. Uh, so it's a really good question because we learn from our mistakes. Awesome. Well, good question, Zach, and congratulations, Craig, on, on getting back up and, uh, <laughs> and pushing through. I couldn't have asked for a better story for, for a response. That was great. Uh, Craig, well, we have reached... The end of our episode, um, a fantastic episode. I couldn't be happier about this entire interview. Um, but before I let you go, of course, at the end of every episode, I do ask my guests to share a piece of advice, something that's been relevant for you, something that's uh, really resonated with you and your experiences, or something that maybe is really true for you right now with something you're working on or going through. Um, anything you want to send home with people today? And obviously, you've already shared just a ton of advice, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I figured I would ask and see if there's anything else left in there that you want to send people home with. I think one thing, and that's to take advice with a pinch of salt in some ways. Uh, and what I mean by that is a lot of people ask people, designers of my generation, like, how do I get into games? How do I do this? And honestly, our actual roots and our experiences aren't actually very relevant to today's world because the world has changed immensely from when we were breaking into the industry. I think the philosophy of how we applied ourselves and hard work and making games and learning, those are things you can 
kind of they're good strong fundamentals you should always follow but the whole like when you ask for advice of how do i get into games like don't do it how i did it because that probably won't work anymore <laughs> uh and maybe look to how you can forge your own path and use modern mediums and the modern media and roots and kind of just define your own path but always remember that nothing kind of beats the hard work and putting hours into it there's no shortcuts I like it. Craig, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate your time. Um, I appreciate a lot of your time um, spent with me. And uh, if people have been, you know, really excited by what you've been talking about, they want to follow your work, they want to follow your, you know, uh, what's going on with you, how do they find you and your work out on those interwebs? Uh, I am usually found trotting, uh, twittering away, I guess. Is twittering the right word? I think so. I think the, that's right. Is that what the cool kids say now? <laughs> uh, uh, my handle is actually my old... Uh, Anarchy Online character name, which is Silurian. Uh, should I spell that? I guess I should. Probably. It's at S I L I R R I O N. Uh, and I'm usually found actually posting about the little toy soldiers that I paint uh, as much as I am game design, but I talk about game design a little on there too. Sure. Fair enough. I like it. Well, um, anything else we need to touch on? Otherwise, I think that was it. No, it's been a pleasure. So I, I love talking about this stuff and hopefully, you know, I love nothing more than encouraging people to get into games and make games for themselves and get to see the cool things that come out of that passion. Well, obviously, that's what we're trying to do here with this podcast. Um, you've been a fantastic guest. I know I'm singing your praise. Craig Morrison, really, really Design Director of Blizzard Entertainment and World of Warcraft. Thank you for joining us this week. Again, if you have thoughts, questions, or ideas you'd like to share, you can email me at logan at blackshowmedia.com or reach out on Twitter at Indie underscore Insider or at Logan A. Schultz. That's L-O-G-A-N-A-S-C-H-U-L-T-Z. You can also find us on Instagram under the name Indie Insider. The show is on iTunes, Google Play, and other podcast services across the web, as well as the Black Show Media blog. If you enjoy what we're doing here and want us to keep doing it, or if you have things you'd like us to change, please go to your favorite podcast provider and leave us a review so that we can keep sharing these episodes with you each week. Special thanks this week go out to Raghav Mother, Daniel Doan, and Raquel Hainer, as well as Benjamin Tiso over at bensound.com for the use of his song, Going Higher. I'm Logan Schultz, and you've been listening to Indie Insider. We'll see you next week. <laughs>